certainly is good to see all of you out this morning. Always good when we can come together on the Lord's Day to worship Him in spirit and in truth as we strive to do here. This time we're going to open up the pages of Scripture and see if we can't learn more about His will for us and understand what He has revealed better. Wednesday evening, I was having a conversation with Dan and Dave, and we were talking about some different things, and the idea of calling on the name of the Lord came up in our conversation, and I said, you know, I have a lesson somewhere on that, and so I thought it would be a good and interesting subject to look at together this morning. It's a phrase that we see used throughout the scriptures in Genesis chapter 4, way back in the very beginning. We read there in verse 25 that Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. And notice it says there that men then began to call on the name of the Lord. And so again, we see this phrase uh, clear back in the very beginning pages of Scripture, and we see it used uh, all the way up into the New Testament as well. When we typically think about the phrase, our minds probably go to a couple passages in the New Testament. One of those is in Romans chapter 10. Here in verse 11 beginning, it says, The scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, another passage of Scripture that is probably familiar to many of us is found in Joel chapter 2. And as I say Joel chapter 2, maybe you're thinking, well, maybe this isn't as familiar as I thought maybe he was going uh, to share. But I think as you read it, you'll recognize it. Verse 28 there says, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Now, why does that sound familiar? Well, Peter quotes that passage almost word for word in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost as the church is beginning, and the very first individuals are baptized 
into Christ for the remission of their sins. And so, typically when we think about the phrase, we associate it with this idea of salvation in some way. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And a lot of times in the denominational world, this passage or these verses will be quoted to try and demonstrate that all we have to do is make some kind of profession of our belief in Jesus Christ for salvation, that uh, baptism and these other kinds of things, that's, that's a work. That's something that is not going to do anything for us in regards to us being saved. Rather, it's this calling on the name of the Lord, and they kind of isolate that to this idea of just a verbal acknowledgement of something. And so we want to consider, well, what does this really mean? When we find this phrase used, what is being designated? And we're going to allow the scriptures themselves to explain themselves, as we always want to do. Now, if we've done any studying of the New Testament, we might initially identify a perhaps a contradiction in this idea that, well, if we're saying that calling on the name of the Lord for salvation is just saying, I believe in Christ, or something of that nature, that seems to contradict some other plain passages of Scripture, doesn't it? Well, you would be correct in that. Just a couple examples, Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. Notice here, Jesus is speaking, and he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? So Jesus himself seems to denounce this idea that Calling on the name of the Lord is isolated to just this actually acknowledging him as Lord. He says, why do you call me that, but then not obey my commandments? In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, a very similar thing here. There again, Jesus is speaking. He says, not everyone who says to me, notice, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But who is the one that will enter? He says, he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So, right away we, we can kind of uh, knock the foundation out from under the, the teaching that calling on the name of the Lord is, is, is limited to just this verbal acknowledgement of who Jesus is because Jesus himself says there's more to it than that. You can't just call me Lord and then disregard everything that I've commanded you to do. So, defining this phrase, often in a study of a certain phrase or a certain topic, we will look at some Greek words because we know that the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. And so sometimes when we look at those original words, it can help us to understand better the, the original intent or meaning behind a certain thing that we're reading about. So this, this phrase, calling upon the name of the Lord, the, uh, the act of calling upon, is from the Greek epikaleo. And that is literally defined as calling upon or appealing to. And typically we would associate that with someone who has more authority or power than we do. 
Now we see this even used back in the pages of the Old Testament, this, this same idea. We could go to 1 Kings chapter 18. In verse 22 here, beginning, we know in context, this is where Elijah the prophet is having this contest with the prophets of Baal up on Mount Carmel. They're going to determine who is the real true God. So, verse 22, Elijah says to the people, they've all gathered to see what's going to happen, as you recall. And so he speaks to them and says, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lie it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will likewise prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and, and also put no fire under it. Then notice he says, you call on the name of your God. So you're going to appeal to the authority or power of Baal. And I'm going to call upon the name of the Lord. So there's that phrase again. And what's he talking about here? He's going to appeal to the power or authority of the true God. And the God then who answers, notice, by fire, he is God. And so all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Of course, we know how that all played out. So looking at this example kind of helps us to see that definition a little bit more clearly. Uh, this appealing to a higher authority or power as for sanction or corroboration or a decision. We could look also in Acts chapter 25. Now we find that here in this passage, in chapter 25, uh, specifically in verse 12, as we're going to notice here in a moment, uh, that Paul uses that same Greek word, and here we can see how, again, it is used to designate uh, appealing to a higher power as for an answer. Verse 9 there, it says that Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you very well know. If I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver them uh, or deliver me to them. And so notice he says, I appeal to Caesar. That word appeal there is that same Greek word that we noted that is also rendered to call upon. Okay, so he's appealing to the authority of Caesar in this instance for an ultimate decision, we might say. Now, he can't go any higher than the king. And so that's who he appeals to. Now, as we think about calling upon the name of the Lord in the same sense, we are appealing then to God for an answer by doing something that he's prescribed. We expect him to answer us, in other words, in a particular way when we do certain things. Who's the ultimate authority? Well, God is the ultimate authority. Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so we are appealing to the ultimate authority when we call on the name of the Lord. Now, 
Another passage that I think helps us to understand what all is entailed when we are calling upon the name of the Lord is actually back in the book of Zephaniah, another book maybe we don't go to all that much. But in Zephaniah chapter 3, and specifically verse 9 there, we read, Then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, God is speaking here, that they all may, notice, call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. So in this verse, we see almost a clarification of what are we talking about here? When we say call on the name of the Lord, notice to serve him with one accord. And so it entails the idea of rendering obedience to God based on what he has said or commanded with the expectation then that God is going to keep his word and what he said will be the result of us doing that particular thing. Our everyday manner of life is to be carried out or conducted in this way. Colossians 3 verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, notice, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do all by the authority of Jesus Christ, we might say. So in everything we say and do, we should be, in essence, appealing to his authority, expecting then that he will bless us in the way that he has promised to as a result. So we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so, generally speaking, as we think about what this phrase would entail, when we go back to Genesis 4, like we did at the very beginning, and we read about men begin to call on the name of the Lord, well, what were they doing? What was that all about? Well, they were living by faith, in other words, listening to God's commandments and then acting on those commandments, faith comes by hearing, but then there's the expectation to obey those commands. So as they did that, as they lived by faith, they and we likewise, we appeal to God's ability to keep his promises, namely to shepherd us ultimately unto eternal life. And we see this idea, of course, in Psalm 23, where uh, the Lord is spoken there as our shepherd. Uh, he's described as our shepherd. He leads us beside still waters, takes us to green pastures. And there's a phrase used in that psalm, he does all this for his name's sake. In other words, he has spoken certain things to us saying, now listen, if you'll listen to me and follow my guidance, then I'm going to do certain things for you. And so the Lord shepherds us for his namesake, in, the, in, the other, in other words, what he's saying there is he does it to prove his words to be true, to prove that when he speaks, he answers in just the way that he had prescribed he would. And so to live in the, in the sense of calling on the name of the Lord is to walk by faith with the expectation that God will keep his word and do what he has promised. So then, bringing it back to salvation, and we notice that this phrase is used in certain places specifically to talk about people being saved from their sins. We notice a couple examples of that at the beginning. So how does this work in regards to salvation? Well, in Acts chapter 2, we notice that the prophecy that we read there in Joel 2 was then 
reiterated by Peter in Acts chapter 2. And so we're going to notice how Peter's quoting of that passage and those instructions, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How was that fulfilled there in that day as he spoke these things? Well, I believe that we can see its fulfillment in verse 38. After he had concluded his speech, or was close to concluding his speech, he was actually uh, now giving them some instruction because they'd asked for it. They said, well, if all these things you're saying are true, we've killed the Son of God, we are sinners, what shall we do? Verse 37, right? Well, Peter says, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that line up with verse 21? Well, let's walk through it here. Whoever calls, right? Doesn't leave anybody out. It's open for everybody, right? Well, what did Peter say? Let every one of you do something here. Calls would correlate with this instruction of repent and be baptized. This is the instruction God's given you, so as you do these things, you are appealing then to his ability to bring about the desired consequence of those actions. We're calling on the name of the Lord. We're baptized in the name by the authority, you see, of Jesus Christ. And what is the result? We shall be saved. We will have the remission of our sins. And really, you could carry that even into the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is eternal life. And so you see how Peter not only quotes these things, but we see how it's fulfilled practically in the things that play out there on the day of Pentecost. Now let's come to Romans 10, because that's the other passage that we had looked at at the beginning. Romans chapter 10 and we had looked at uh, verses 11 through 13. We'll read it again here. The scripture says, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Uh, God is rich to everyone who calls upon him. And so again, verse 13, this quote from Joel, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we can see the same uh, explanation as we look at the larger context here in Romans 10, just like we did in Acts chapter 2. You know, if you just stop right there, it's real easy to make the case, right? Well, it just talks about belief here. It just talks about saying something about your belief. And when we isolate little pieces of Scripture, we can pretty much make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. But we got to look at the larger context of things and allow the Bible to explain itself and define itself. That's what we're seeking to do here. So let's keep reading. Let's move into verse 14. Read through verse 16. So whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the statement that we left off with in verse 13. So now a question is going to be asked by Paul. Well, how then shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? That word's important. That shows us that belief is part of this process of calling on his name. We pretty much have established that just in the previous verses. So, belief is certainly included. He says, how shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? 
How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they're sent? So he's kind of walking this back as to how's this all begin in the first place. Well, it has to start with somebody explaining something to somebody about what's appropriate to be doing. And then the person that has that explanation has to believe in it. So he goes on there talking about preachers. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. He then says, but they've not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So the people that he's talking about here specifically, he's saying they can't call upon the Lord unless they believed. And now we find out, well, they have not believed. So that was the first problem in their ability to call on the name of the Lord successfully for the desired effect or purpose. But then notice, in addition to that, he says they've not obeyed the gospel. Well, why wouldn't they obey the gospel? Why wouldn't they render obedience? Well, because they hadn't believed. So you have to do the, the steps in order. <laughs> you can't just come up and be baptized and have no conviction about anything related to what baptism is or the purpose of it and expect that you're going to have your sins forgiven. It starts with our faith or our belief that's then acted upon, wherein faith is made perfect. So to call upon him starts with belief, but then it requires that obedience. You see how that all works together in the passage? Now, verse 17, we quote a lot. In fact, I quoted it earlier. But when you understand this whole context, it really is, is more a commentary on the complete picture of faith um, as far as it being more than just belief in something. So notice, he's been talking about this idea, people wanting to call on the name of the Lord, but they haven't believed, and subsequently they haven't obeyed what has been commanded. So then, in light of all this that we've just discussed, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith is belief, yes, but also that obedience that is expected. That's not, of course, the only place we could go to establish that. Hebrews 11, verse 6, Without faith it is impossible to please him, because he who comes to God must believe, but also diligently seek him. So, those two things are involved in biblical faith. Now, perhaps the clearest passage we could go to, I feel like when you study those other passages, it, it becomes pretty clear as to what it means to call on the name of the Lord. But, it gets even clearer, believe it or not. Acts chapter 22, I think, is uh, the place we could go that maybe if we wanted to give the, the quickest, simplest answer, to the question we pose, what does it mean to call upon the name of the Lord for salvation? Go to Acts chapter 22. Verse 16 is specifically where we're going to get to, but we're going to notice the overall context here to make some additional points. So in Acts chapter 22, Paul is recounting his conversion, which originally is recorded in Acts chapter 9. And so, verse 6 there, as he begins, he says, It happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, 
Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? He acknowledges that whoever is speaking to him clearly has authority over him, clearly is greater than he is. Who are you, Lord? And so the Lord responds. says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Those who were with me indeed saw the light, were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Now, as we think about everything that Paul, who was then Saul, everything that he went through during this episode, he saw Jesus Christ. He heard his voice. We're going to see here how he went into the city and he prayed and he fasted. So keep all that in mind here. As we continue into verse 10, Paul says, What shall I do, Lord? And notice that the Lord didn't give him a a direct answer as to the specifics. He just said, I want you to go to Damascus and there you're going to meet somebody who's going to tell you specifically what you need to do. He was blinded by the glory of the light there, verse 11, and so he was led by the hand and came into the city. So he saw Christ, and we see that specifically designated in chapter 9 and verse 17. He clearly believed in the authority and lordship of Jesus based on his reaction and his response to the one who spoke. In Acts chapter 9, it specifically talks about how he fasted, like we'd mentioned in verse 9. talks about how he was praying to God. But he wasn't saved yet, was he? And that's, that's the key that I want us to understand. A lot of people these days, they believe in Jesus Christ, or at least claim to. And I would say that there's sincerity behind that, even though maybe they misunderstand what that really means for them. But they'll believe in Jesus. They do certain things, perhaps, that are good things in and of themselves. Fasting is a good thing that we can read about in the Scriptures. Praying, certainly, we know, is a good thing. Oftentimes, you'll hear it prescribed, well, if you want to be saved, then pray this prayer, right? But Saul had done all this, but yet he still was not saved. And we see that made plain in the next section of the scripture here, verse 12, as we pick up. We find here where Ananias uh, is instructed by God to come to Saul and to further explain to him a number of things. He'd been selected, of course, for a special mission, we might call it, to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but also he's going to explain to him what he needs to do to make himself right with God to be cleansed of his sins. So Ananias, he was a devout man according to the law. He had a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there in Damascus. He came to me, Paul says. He stood and he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up and saw him. The the scales that were over his eyes, as as they were described in chapter 9, they fell away from his eyes. He could see once again. So he's able to now look up and see who this man is that's speaking to him. Ananias continues and says, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see 
the just one. So there again, we have confirmation that Paul saw Jesus Christ with his own eyes. That's what blinded him. He heard the voice of his mouth. For Ananias says, you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. But now notice he asks a question in verse 16. Why are you waiting? He says, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Notice, calling on the name of the Lord. So if you still had any doubt as to well, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord, it's pretty plain right there, isn't it? If Paul was going to call on the name of the Lord, what did he have to do? He had to be baptized and wash away his sins. And we couple that with everything else we've looked at. Romans 10, you believe, you render that obedience. Acts chapter 2, Peter says, repent of your sins. Be, again, baptized by the authority of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to appeal to the power and authority of Jesus Christ with expectation that as we have met those requirements, we've taken the prescription that he's given, that the result promised is going to be received. What's the result promised? Salvation. Forgiveness of our sins. Hope of eternal life. And so we reach the conclusion. I know that's a, at least to me, it feels like a short lesson. And I was looking over it again. And I'm like, well, what could I add in there? Well, there's really not all that much more to say, is there, on this particular subject, at least in my opinion. But, you know, sometimes the, the shorter lessons are, are okay. We don't have to talk for an hour to get the point across. And so I hope that as we've looked at these things and studied these things, it's been beneficial to you. Uh, it's really not all that complicated, but sometimes it can seem complicated if we don't take the time to really look at things in some detail. This morning, perhaps there are some here who have never called upon the name of the Lord for salvation. We have noticed a number of scriptures that show us plainly what is involved in that, what is expected of us if we are to receive the promises of God have hope of eternal life. But to close this morning with the words of Jesus himself. Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 15, as he spoke to his disciples, go into all the world, he said, and preach the gospel, the good news concerning what Jesus has done. Preach it to everybody. And he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So we have a very simple choice in our lives. Are we going to listen to what Jesus has said and do what Jesus has said, or are we going to not believe what Jesus has said? This morning, I hope you'll make the decision to render obedience to Christ if you've not yet done so. If you need to do that, we would love to assist you in your salvation this morning. If you're here and you have wandered astray, you need to come home, or you're just struggling with something and need prayers, we'd love to likewise at this time assist you in those things.
Whatever your spiritual need might be, would you express it now as we stand and as we sing the song that our brothers selected?